As uh, a very famous Australian lyric reminds us, we are girt by sea, but that's not good enough for us. We have to uh, fill our backyards with swimming pools. You see their opalescent glimmer as you fly into to mascot. It seems that every second backyard has one. They, they're as fundamental as a hill's hoist. So we have answered the, uh, the question, to swim or not to swim, in the emphatically positive. But whether you can swim or not has always been a social divider, often an indicator of cultural power, whether you have access to water and access to swimming lessons. For much of history, those who can swim have considered themselves above those who can't. It was a display of strength to the extent that European colonists, when they saw swimming prowess in Africa, Asia, the Pacific, resolved to emulate it. But there have also been periods and places where those who considered themselves superior defiantly did not swim. Swimming was for slaves and others expected to endure hardship. This fascinating topic uh, has been wonderfully captured in a book called Shifting Currents, A World History of Swimming. The author is Karen Avakar, an emeritus associate professor of history at Portland State in Oregon. Karen, welcome to our little program. Take us back to early swimming. Tell us about what was going on in, for example, the Bronze Age. Thank you so much, Philip. It's an honour to be here. The first swimmers we know of actually go back even before the Bronze Age, probably long before the Bronze Age and the Stone Age, even before the last Ice Age, probably before there were even any humans in Europe at all. There were already people swimming in, you know, in Africa and other parts of the world. But our first actual evidence of people swimming just recently emerged from excavations in Italy, actually, in Europe. Uh, some Neanderthals, so not even modern humans, living on the Mediterranean coast in Italy. And the evidence is that their ear bones show evidence of having been infected, you know, with swimmer's ear. And so they appear to have been diving to the bottom of the uh, of the cove where they lived and, and bringing up seashells from the bottom, clams and things. I'm very fond of the ancient Egyptians. Are there uh, depictions of swimming in Egypt? Absolutely, yes. Uh, you know, in a straight line from this very early period to the Bronze Age, right? The, the Ice Age doesn't really affect Egypt, so they just keep right on swimming uh, there. And they, you know, our earliest images from ancient Egypt include people doing, you know, quite a creditable job swimming. They're, they've got a good form and they're, they're using a nice overarm stroke and... <laughs> Uh, they, you know, they seem to really know what they're doing. Very early hieroglyphs from the very beginning of the Bronze Age. I would have thought the Ice Age was uh, would threaten hypothermia and probably discourage swimming for quite a long time. And absolutely, that is what happens all across uh, northern Asia, from Japan, Korea, northern China, all the way to Europe, and including Europe. Everybody in that area seems to have forgotten how to swim during the Ice Age. 
it just didn't get warm enough, even in the summer, for people to want to swim. And plus, I think we don't realize how much water was actually in the glaciers and not available to be ponds and lakes and things during even during the summer. So there, there's nowhere to swim, really. Okay, let's go back to somewhere where there was tons of water, and that's the Nile. Uh, were there power differences evident in early Egypt? Oh, yeah. Uh, one of the, the earliest uh, references to swimming from ancient Egypt is a great, uh, it's, it's carved on the wall of the tomb of a very powerful governor of a province, a nomarch. And uh, this guy, Kenny, he's boasting on the wall of his tomb that when he was a small child, he had swimming lessons with the pharaoh's children. But even working people knew how to swim, I guess, had to know. Well, I mean, I suppose they didn't have to know because, as we'll see later, like not everybody knows. But they did. They certainly did swim all up and down the Nile. We have images of ordinary people diving down to the bottom of the Nile to pull up their fishing net. There's a, a Middle Kingdom reference to uh, a guy who's a scribe. His son, he wants his son to be a scribe too. And he says he should plunge into the study of Egyptian learning in the same way that he would plunge into the river. Nonetheless, so nonetheless that, you, know, you, you, you make the point that the rich swim with the rich and the poor with the poor. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's why Keddy is so proud that as a child he had swimming lessons with the Pharaoh's children because it shows how important he is. Uh, but it's important to see that that's about who he's swimming with, not about knowing how to swim, right? Everybody knows how to swim, but it's not that only the rich know how to swim. It's that only the rich swim with other rich people. Now, the fact that Egyptians were good swimmers must put a different uh, frame on the Exodus story. Oh, absolutely. That was so exciting to me when I saw that. Think about the Bible's account of the Jews crossing the Red Sea, right? The Jews came from further north, from what's now Israel, and they're part of this group that has forgotten how to swim in the Ice Age. So here they are escaping from Egypt, and they come to the Red Sea, and the audience listening to the story knows that these are non-swimmers, afraid of the water, and the Egyptians chasing them, the audience knows they're great swimmers. That makes God's miracle so much more impressive than we usually realize. He lets the terrified non-swimmers cross safely, and then he drowns the confident, experienced swimmers. I shall never read the Bible in quite the same way. Now, the <laughs> Europeans start to want to do what the Egyptians and other Africans were doing. Yes, around the end of the Bronze Age, and especially in the beginning of the Iron Age, around 700 BC, Europeans are starting to trade more with Egypt, and so are the Jews and the Assyrians in what's now Syria, a little further north. And they're, they're all impressed with how sophisticated the Egyptians are. Uh, all these northern people start to use Egyptian papyrus for writing, and they eat Egyptian dates, and they wear Egyptian glass beads and Egyptian linen dresses, and they use Egyptian ostrich feather fans and African ivory from elephant tusks. 
they're getting all their best, most cool stuff from the Egyptians. And so they also begin to learn how to swim to show how sophisticated they are. They have, we have images of Assyrians swimming about this time, and they're, they're using inflated goat skins to help them. They're, they have floaties, right? <laughs> and, and from around the same time, we have Odysseus swimming in Homer's Odyssey, and he gets shipwrecked, and he has to swim to uh, the island of the Phaeacians, and he has a magic veil to help him keep afloat. So, you know, they're swimming, but they're a little uncertain about it. Does history record the moment when the flipper becomes a part of uh, swimming culture? Um, Benjamin Franklin is said to have made flippers out of wood, but he said they didn't work very well. <laughs> okay. Now, when you were mentioning those uh, those fans made from ostrich feathers, I couldn't help but recall that you are, in fact, an authority on the history of fans. I am. Yes, I suppose I thought of it because of that. <laughs> I, I just wrote a paper about the history of feather fans showing that they, you know, like so much else, come from Africa and not, as many people think, from China. So just as powerful Europeans follow African fashions in their clothing and jewellery, they follow Africans in learning how to swim. Yes. And European swimming was uh, class divided? Um, yes, but in a different way from the class division in Egypt. So in Egypt, right, everybody knows how to swim, but rich people swim with rich people and poor with poor. In Europe, people associated swimming itself with being rich. So it was something only rich people were supposed to do, like having fancy clothes or eating fancy food. Um, ordinary people didn't know how. And we see this with Odysseus's swimming he can swim to save himself in a shipwreck, but his crew can't. They all drown. And a few centuries later, a wonderful quote from Plato. Yeah, Plato says, he says it's a proverb in his time. Uh, we don't really know. Maybe he made it up. But he, he says it's a proverb that an uneducated person can't read or swim. Like we say people can't read or write, he says they can't read or swim. So why does he think those two things go together? Because swimming and reading are both hard to learn and impossible to fake. So a poor person trying to fake being rich is going to be exposed right away if you take them swimming or you ask them to read something. And conversely, a rich person, even if they're naked and alone like shipwrecked Odysseus on the island of the Phaeacians, they can identify themselves as rich because they know how to swim or because they know how to read. The program is, of course, Late Night Live, and the guest is Karen Ava Carr. And uh, I now have to ask you to help me with a problem. Can you define swimming? Well, I, I, I think we all actually know what swimming is, and we only think it's a hard question because a lot of people, both in antiquity and today, want to be counted as swimmers without really being very good at it. But I would say the, the important thing to realize is that humans are different from monkeys or dogs, which can swim naturally. When you dog enters the water, he just moves his legs like he was running, he'll swim. Uh, but once people well, evolve the, the to famous stand up dog right, paddle. Right, he dog paddles, exactly. 
Once humans evolved to stand upright and walk, they could only swim by learning and practicing a whole completely different set of motions. And that's the process we mean when we say that people can swim. A swimmer can manage well for extended periods in water where it's too deep to stand up without having to hold on to an inflated device. I have to, to make a confession, and please, Karen, don't repeat this, but many, many years ago when I was a little fella in Melbourne, children wanted to get what was called the Herald Learn to Swim Certificate, and you mm. had to swim, you know, across the baths from one side to the other. And, Karen, I cheated. I put my foot on the bottom Oh, my gosh, they let you do it where you could put your foot on the bottom? I'm afraid they did, and I cheated. So to this day, I've never confessed that. But you bring this (laughs) out in me. There's something about you, Karen, that encourages uh, honesty. (laughs) What about dying? My my children had to swim their lap to be allowed into the deep end of the pool, but you had to swim it in the deep end so they knew (laughs) you weren't putting your foot down. There's a lot of diving, of course, in history, isn't there, to mend ships, get oyster pearls and so on? Yes, I think, um, I mean, probably most people who are professional pearl divers or or coral divers do know how to swim, but um, I tried not to focus on that too much because I think mostly they're holding on to a rope and a weight, right? And so it's they go down on the rope and they come up on the rope. They're, it's terrible work, but it doesn't tell you much about their swimming skills, really. So swimming should be defined as being able to move across the top of water without being able to stand on the bottom and with an overarm or crawl stroke. Now, I'm willing to count breaststroke as swimming. Most people in Europe today learn breaststroke first. So I gather in Australia you learn uh, the overarm crawl first. Well, we we actually call it the Australian crawl, but... Uh... You know, when I was learning to swim as a child in the 1960s in uh, America, my teachers called it the Australian crawl. You know, there have always been people who think they can swim, though, haven't they, Karen? Yes, it's a major cause of drowning in the United States anyway. Young men who have often been drinking who know they can't swim, but they think they'll just figure it out when they hit the water. So, you know, for all of you out there, don't try that. It doesn't work. Yet, Karen, you make the point that even now, most people in the world can't swim. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and I think it's a terrible shame. But uh, again, most people, the main reason that they can't swim is that they are prevented from, you know, either because uh, the water near them is too polluted to swim in, or it's fenced off only for tourists. Or some people, of course, the water near them is just too dangerous to swim in. There are bad riptides or something like that. But, you know, most people used to know how to swim, and today most people don't. And I think the the main difference is that these European non-swimmers who forgot how to swim in the last ice age have spread their fear of the water around the world and the idea that only rich people should be able to swim. This is LNL, and we're discussing a great book, called uh, Shifting Currents, A World History of Swimming, which incidentally is full of beautiful illustrations of ancient art and the like. 
and I'm talking to its author, Karen Ava Carr. Karen's an historian from Portland State University in Oregon. Now, it's quite remarkable to think that Captain Cook and his crew all couldn't swim. Those vast oceans they traversed over such a long period. But I remember being told decades ago that it was most uncommon for sailors of the era to be able to swim because it was deemed would only prolong the agony if they fell overboard. I've heard that story and I've also heard people saying that they, the British Navy was afraid that people would abandon ship, that they, you know, as soon as you got into port, all the sailors would dive overboard and try to <laughs> escape from the terrible conditions. Well, I, I, there must be some truth in it, but you, it's quite clear that Cook and his crew were nervous around water. Oh, yeah. One of one of Cook's crew members, for example, he was sent out on a search party in 1777 in one of the Pacific Islands. And he Cook's journal says that he attempted the lagoon and he waded nearly across without the water rising higher than his middle, but all at once plunged overhead in deep water. And remember, we said you have to be able to swim in deep water in order to know how to swim. But Cook reports that it was next to a miracle that he saved himself from drowning. So clearly, you know, he can cross the water if it's only up to his middle, but not if it's over his head. Cook and uh, co. were astounded, of course, by the swimming abilities of those they encountered across the Pacific. Yes, the next year after the, the guy crossing the lagoon, James Cook is super admiring of the Hawaiian women he sees swimming far from shore, carrying their infants. And also, of course, there's people surfing. He says they're vigorous, active, and most expert swimmers. They keep jumping out of their canoes and swimming from canoe to canoe and diving under the canoes and swim, holding their babies. And he says through a sea that looked dreadful, like he can't even imagine anyone swimming in these big waves and yet they are swimming, holding babies. I'm learning a lot from you. Now, <laughs> in 1604 in the Philippines, a Jesuit missionary marvels how, at how people took to the water as soon as they were born. He said they swim like fish, no need for a bridge across the river. Yeah, um, I think, you know, I have a little trouble with, I think if we parse why is he saying that, you you start to see that he's a slave dealer and what he really wants is to enslave these people that he sees swimming. And he tries to get us to imagine them as natural swimmers like dogs or horses that can swim as soon as they're born without being taught because they're not rational humans. And that's why it's okay to enslave them. So, you know, Europeans start to feel that they themselves don't want to swim because they want to be, you know, free from slavery. They want to be free people. The Europeans sought to distance themselves from indigenous swimmers, didn't they? Right, absolutely. So, you know, first of all, they, they, they don't really swim, or if they do swim, they swim only the breaststroke to show that they are civilised, non-splashing people, and they draw a big <laughs> distinction between people who splash when they swim, who are savages and should be enslaved, and people who swim calmly, like in scientifically, 
This is also the time of the big witch hunts in Europe with women being thrown into ponds to see if they're witches. And what proves you're a witch is that you can float. And that's not a coincidence, right? It's the same idea that uh, floating and swimming are, are not desirable. The use and abuse of indigenous swimmers is a uh, sadly recurrent theme. Your book has a sketch of uh, George Augustus Robinson, a key figure in Tasmania settler indigenous relations. Tell us about that. Oh, it's such a funny picture. He, it's in the British Museum now. He's uh, he's sitting fully clothed, astride a log, you know, like holding his feet up so they don't, you know, go too much in the water. And an unnamed Australian, I guess, Tasmanian swimmer is pushing the log across the Fourth River. So, you know, I'm sure he was, he drew this picture himself for in his journal. So I, I'm sure that he was sort of making fun of himself you know, look how silly, I don't know how to swim. Somebody has to push me across the river. But clearly, you know, it's the indigenous person who knows how to swim. So at the same time that he's making fun of himself, Robinson is saying, look how civilized I am compared to this indigenous person who swims. I mentioned uh, the private swimming pools of Australia, but of course we also have public pools. And in more recent times, we had the exclusion of Indigenous people from them. And that prompted our famous Freedom Rides in 1965. Mm-hmm. Yes, at the Moray Baths, right, and the Kempsey Baths. Uh, and this is, this is part of a worldwide pattern of excluding black and brown people from swimming places that starts actually in South Africa, where the first beaches were segregated about 1888. And it spreads from there all over the world. They say the water is only for civilized white swimmers. And even, even people that you might think of as super civilized, Japanese immigrants who were often very skilled swimmers were not generally allowed into white pools. Many Jewish people were excluded from pools, both in Europe and in the US and all over the world, even though they were from the traditionally non-swimming group, as we've seen. And suddenly things turned full circle and uh, white people wanted to be the swimmers and exclude black people. Yes. I mean, I think they continue this idea that they're going to be scientific swimmers, uh, you know, and swim in swimming pools and, and wear bathing suits and, and uh, use the breaststroke in many cases. Um, but they, they put out a series of racist articles that falsely claim that black people were physically incapable of swimming because of greater bone density or various other reasons, none of which are true. Well, uh, the success of African-Americans at the Olympics attest to the nonsense of that, don't they? Exactly. African-Americans have now won at least five Olympic swimming medals. So there's, there's absolutely no excuse for believing that black people genetically can't swim. But, but none, nonetheless, you emphasise the point that higher income people worldwide are still today far more likely to know how to swim. Yes, absolutely. But they're still usually not as good at swimming as the Africans and indigenous people were before they were forced out of the water. 
Karen, thank you for that. That was absolutely fascinating. And I will never swim again without thinking of your scholarly efforts. Karen <laughs> Ava Carr is the author of Shifting Currents, a world history of swimming. And I bet you had never thought it was such an interesting topic. Uh, her book comes from Reaction Books. Thank you, Karen. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a privilege. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.